This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. What is happening in the Arctic now is unprecedented and possibly catastrophic. That's the tweet heard around the world at the end of February. It was picked up by the independent newspaper in the UK and many other places in the alternative and climate-savvy media. Robert Hunziker did a strong piece about it in Counterpunch called The Arctic Turns Ugly. The tweeter is a world-known scientist. Dr. Peter Glick is a member of the U.S. National Academy of Science. He's a MacArthur Fellow and president of the Pacific Institute, which he co-founded. He was a guest on Radio EcoShock in March 2014. Peter Glick, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thank you for having me. What is happening in the Arctic this winter that is so unusual? Well, for many years now, really the last decade or so, we've seen increasingly rapid melting of ice in the Arctic. Uh, The last few years have been especially bad, and this year is even worse than all of the previous years. What's happening is in the warm part of the year, uh, we're rapidly losing ice pack in the Arctic. And in the winter, when we expect it to regrow, right around now when it gets really cold, it's not regrowing as much because the Arctic has been so astoundingly warm. Uh, and because of that, we're losing Arctic ice. We're seeing changes in atmospheric patterns around the world. We're seeing basically an influence of some of these rapid climate-induced changes that are happening in the Arctic extending all around the world. And why is it warming so much? Is it just El Nino, as the television continually tells us, or is it really climate change? Oh, it's absolutely climate change. No, no, it's uh, certainly an El Nino year. It's a warmer year in the Pacific than than normal. But we've had El Nino years before. What's happening is global climate change. We, we know that the temperature around the world is going up. Uh, we know that that's because of human activities. The last few years have been the warmest years on record for California, for the United States, for the globe as a whole, for the Arctic especially. And one of the problems is that the way the world works from a climate perspective, we know that on average the world is warming up, but it turns out that the Arctic is warming up much faster than the rest of the world, just because of the way the circulation patterns work, because of feedbacks where more heat's being absorbed by a darker ocean up in the Arctic rather than being reflected by the ice. There are a combination of things that are making the Arctic especially vulnerable to these climate changes. Peter Glick, why are you alarmed about this, and is that concern shared by other scientists? Well, I'm alarmed about it because Frankly, what's happening in the Arctic is unprecedented because it affects the rest of us around the world in all sorts of ways, from changes in storm patterns, changes in circulation flows in the ocean, uh, there are political implications of the rapid changes in the Arctic. I mean, they're just, it's just a, it's a harbinger of things to come, and I think we all need to be worried about it. And for those scientists who focus on the Arctic, there's tremendous concern. I think there's really universal concern among Arctic scientists and among climate scientists that that what's happening in the Arctic is not only unprecedented, uh, not only an indication of the kinds of changes we're going to continue to see in the coming decades, but that those changes are bad. And I have to tell you, Peter, what we're talking about is not being covered very well, if at all, by the corporate media. We're hearing about Donald Trump and the Kardashians. Do you think this climate silence is a conspiracy by a few major media corporations, or is it possible that all of us are so addicted to fossil fuels we really don't want to know? 
Well, you know, I never know why different media outlets pick different stories. There has been a growing coverage of some of these climate changes uh, around the world and in the Arctic. We've seen some media outlets covering it. You know, as a scientist, I, I, I never think that there's enough good science being covered by the media. Uh, I always think that the kinds of things they focus on are often popular culture, uh, some of the ridiculous things we're seeing in the in the political arena now. And, and you know, I, I, I lament that as a scientist. I just wish there was much more coverage of some of these critical changes. But if there's any good news, I, I do think there's a growing awareness worldwide among the public, among the media, that some of these changes are important and they are happening and they are because of human activities and they're going to continue to have implications for us around the world. Do you think these changes in the Arctic are a sign that we could be entering an abrupt climate shift or is it just the beginning of a long process? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think it's, a, I think it's both. Certainly, we're in a very long process. We, we have not done enough to cut emissions of greenhouse gases. And because of that, the climate is going to continue to change increasingly rapidly in the coming years. Um, but one of the things we especially worry about that we're not that good at forecasting is these kinds of thresholds, these kinds of abrupt changes where, you know, things change incrementally and then all of a sudden something big and dramatic happens. And I'm afraid that the loss of ice over, over the last few years and in the coming years is going to be one of those threshold events when all of a sudden, one summer in the coming years, we're going to have an ice-free Arctic, and then it's going to get even worse. And maybe in the winter, the ice isn't going to refreeze to the extent that it needs to. Uh, those kinds of threshold abrupt changes, we, we don't understand very well. Our models don't forecast very well and are some of the things associated with really bad uh, impacts on humans. As you probably know, the United Kingdom has practically been buried by storm after record-breaking storm this winter, and there's been abnormal weather in many parts of the world. Do you think this change in the weather is directly connected to big changes that we're seeing in the Arctic? I think there's growing evidence that that's exactly right. So one of the implications of a warmer Arctic is changes in atmospheric circulation patterns. Uh, here in California, where I live, we've had four years of drought that increasingly scientists think is influenced in part by some of these changes in the Arctic that's changing where storms are formed in the Pacific Ocean and then where they go because of the jet stream patterns. And that, in fact, maybe some of the moisture that California uh, relies on for its water resources has been driven far north because of some of these changes in the Arctic. Uh, I think some of the storms that we've seen in the Atlantic and the intensity of the storms and, and the impacts on the United Kingdom, I think those possibly are related as well to these changes in the Arctic. But, but we're, we're just trying to figure out the, all the different pieces of this puzzle. The, the climate's a complicated thing. It's the most complicated physical process on the planet. And our models are getting better and better at understanding it. But, but they're certainly not perfect yet. And I think we have a lot more to learn. I've just read a report called Thresholds and Closing Windows, Risks of Irreversible Cryosphere Climate Change. Peter Glick, do you think it's possibly already too late to save the cryosphere as we've known it on this planet for millions of years? Well, in fact, I, th I think those changes are already underway in a way that in our generation are going to lead to permanent changes. I, I think we're losing ice that's on land even in the mountains of California or the, or the Sierra Nevadas or the Rocky Mountains or the Alps or the Andes or the Himalayas, we're, we're losing more and more snow and ice. We know that we're seeing accelerated melt of the ice cap that's sitting on Greenland, 
which is going to have very significant impacts on sea level rise. Uh, ultimately, the Antarctic is going to be affected. The Antarctic is still very cold, and we still have a lot of ice down there, but it's beginning to, to suffer changes as well. And these really dramatic changes in Arctic ice on the floating ice cap in the north, I think some of those are going to be irreversible on the time scale of my generation and probably a couple more generations, unless unless we take really dramatic efforts to cut the use of fossil fuels. And, and I don't I don't see those efforts happening fast enough or, or strongly enough. Well, I think as ordinary citizens and maybe as activists, we do wonder, is it worthwhile to keep fighting if all we can do is slow down the loss and the damage? Should we just keep trying? Oh, absolutely. So, so here's the thing. We're faced with some irreversible changes. No matter what we do, we're committed to some climate change. But if we don't also aggressively slow the emissions of greenhouse gases, those climate changes are going to get worse and worse and worse and faster and faster and faster. So one way to think about this is we have to figure out how to adapt to those changes that are now unavoidable. But we have to figure out how to avoid changes that we just cannot adapt to. You know, it's going to be miserable and, and costly and devastating to deal with one meter of sea level rise. But it's, un, uh, it's inconceivable how we would deal with seven meters, 21 feet or more of sea level rise. And that's the amount of ice that's sitting on Greenland. We have to deal with the changes that are already happening, but we cannot stop aggressively working to prevent even more severe climate changes from happening in the future. And you talked about the complexity of climate science, and it worries me that let's say Greenland ice loss doubles or triples and the Arctic sea ice disappears, as you mentioned, for most of the year. It sounds like a big experiment we're running on the Earth. Do we really know what's coming? Well, that's exactly right. We're running an unknown experiment on the only planet we have. It, it, you know, if somebody were to propose doing this kind of experiment, they would be locked up as crazy because it's the only planet we have. And yet that's the experiment we're doing without knowing fully what the consequences are. But the science is getting better. The science is really good now. And there's plenty of new science that needs to be done in this area. But uncertainties about climate science are absolutely not an excuse not to do anything on the policy side. We've hidden behind uncertainties in climate science as an excuse not to take action. And, you know, when scientists say something uncertain, we're saying there's a range of possible outcomes. The general public hears the word uncertainty and they think, well, these guys don't know what they're talking about. And maybe that's a communications problem and scientists need to get better at, at communicating about what these risks really are. Now, in a tweet heard around the world, you've suggested a catastrophe might be developing. Is that language too extreme? Well, I say that that's a possibility, and it absolutely is a possibility. The Arctic ice is a fundamental component of the climate system and the hydrologic system and the circulation patterns in the atmosphere of the planet, and we are fundamentally changing that. If there's two or three or four meters of sea level rise, I'm sorry, that's catastrophic for millions, if not hundreds of millions of people. If there are fundamental changes in atmospheric circulation coming that are going to permanently alter how much water California or the growing, you know, the, the agricultural centers around the world get, that's a potential catastrophe. Uh, I, I didn't say it's an absolute catastrophe. I said it's a possibility. And the fact that it's a possibility means we had better pay a lot more attention to it and reduce the risks that these impacts are going to be bad. That, that's 
it's the job of scientists to understand what's going on and to communicate that. And it's the job of policymakers to prevent unacceptable risks to the public. And I don't see policymakers stepping up. Well, as we wrap up here, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners? Well, I, I do think it's important to understand what's going on and to communicate with our, our friends and our family and our communities what's going on and not to panic, to understand that there are things that can be done and that we ought to be doing those things and not to let our politicians off the hook. It's their job to deal with these challenges. And it's our job as citizens to communicate to our policymakers that they ought to be doing their job. Dr. Peter Glick, thank you for your timely warning and for spending time with us. Thank you. Find out more about Dr. Peter Glick at the Pacific Institute. The website is pacinst.org. That's P-A-C-I-N-S-T dot org. Peter is author of many scientific papers, highly cited, and nine books, many of them reporting on world freshwater resources. I'm Alex Smith. Radio Ecoshock. A surprising amount of planet Earth is frozen. It's been that way for millions of years, all during our life and evolution. Last December, the world's leading experts on this frozen land and sea warned Earth is heading into irreversible loss in the cryosphere, as they call it. Nothing short of an ice age, perhaps, can avoid incredible changes that will rearrange sea levels, cities, and life as we know it. And I hate to say it, but practically nobody heard them. Scientists and civil servants who know this danger have gathered into a largely volunteer group called the International Cryosphere Climate Initiative, known as ICCI. They've issued a report called Thresholds and Closing Windows, Risks of Irreversible Cryosphere Climate Change. We're joined by one of the coordinators of that report, Pam Pearson, the director of ICCI. Pam, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. It's good to be here. All right. Well, I think the first thing to grasp is that politics and propaganda cannot change the simple fact of physics. Once the temperature goes over zero degrees C or 32 Fahrenheit, water changes to a liquid. We can't talk our way out of that, can we? No, we really can't. And that's probably the basic message of this report and that the scientists are trying to get across. It's not just that once water reaches zero degrees C or 32 degrees Fahrenheit that it melts. In order to bring it back into a frozen state, you need to go below that level that in order to refreeze it. And even more importantly, some of the things that get unfrozen are not going to be able to be frozen again, such as permafrost, for example, until you have a much more prolonged ice age. The other very, very alarming dynamic that really has only become clear since AR5, I would say, the IPCC's fifth assessment report that came out about three years ago now, and that's that some of these processes, once they get started, particularly in West Antarctica, once these large ice sheets start moving, in order to stop that movement, you need to go well below freezing, well below levels where we are today in order to stop that because the mass of the ice, the motion of the ice, the melting at the base of these glaciers from uh, seawater simply gets going almost like a kind of conveyor belt. And in those kinds of processes, you're looking at temperatures below pre-industrial or below anything really that humanity has experienced since the, the dawn of civilization. 
And that's the fear of a lot of the scientists working in these regions especially that they feel has not been adequately heard by the policy world. All right. Now, your report is broken up into five major chapters. Could you just kind of summarize what they are? Yeah, these are some of the most important irreversible thresholds specifically associated with cryosphere. There are other really important things like coral bleaching, uh, what's happening with mangroves, but we simply focused on these particular five because they're approaching a zone of irreversibility. The first are the ice sheets, primarily on Antarctica, but not just West Antarctica, also East Antarctica, which until a few years ago was really thought not to be impacted that much by climate change. That's now known not at all to be true. And, of course, Greenland. And together, these ice sheets hold about 200 meters of sea level rise, so an awful lot of potential sea level rise in these ice sheets. The second are mountain glaciers, which are really important to the communities around them as a resource of water, water regulation, and so on. The third is permafrost, which, as it melts, releases carbon, either in the form of methane or carbon dioxide, both of which can drive climate change further. And, of course, when permafrost melts, it can cause damage to infrastructure, and we've already seen examples of that, for example, in Alaska and northern Canada. The fourth is Arctic sea ice, which won't contribute to sea level rise because it's already in the water, but it has a major role to play in terms of reflectivity at the the top of the globe and has impacts, for example, on the Arctic ecosystem and on permafrost. So it's a very important threshold and one that's changing extremely fast. And the fifth and perhaps least well understood is polar ocean acidification. Because these waters are colder, acidification is occurring all over the globe. But cold water, in essence, absorbs carbon at a faster rate than warmer water. And so these waters are acidifying at a much faster rate than what you see in other parts of the globe. So you're beginning to see impacts already on some of the smaller shelled organisms in this part of the world that form part of the food chain. And so there's a lot of fear, if this continues, that you're going to start seeing some impacts on fisheries and other resources at levels that we're going to be reaching probably uh, this century unless we're able to turn things around. So the five thresholds to summarize are ice sheets, mountain glaciers, permafrost, Arctic sea ice, and then polar ocean acidification. You know, the Arctic has been unbelievably hot this past winter. It rained in the dark of December, unheard of. And I just read the Arctic February was more like the temperature we would expect in June. Why does the Arctic warm so much more than places where most of us live? Well, it's not just the Arctic, actually. It's also all of these cryosphere regions. Um, Antarctica, probably the fastest warming place on Earth, is on the Antarctic Peninsula, for example. So that's also warming more rapidly. And alpine areas also are warming much more quickly when you're high up. And that's one of the reasons why it's it's a combination of altitude, but then also one gets with climate change, polar amplification, and it's much, much greater in the Arctic than it is in Antarctica. Why is not entirely well understood, but it probably has something to do in part with uh, what's going on, say, with the Arctic sea ice, that you're losing that level of reflectivity. And it could be also a result of permafrost 
it's 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 really not well understood why they're warming more quickly. But these are observations, not models, that they are warming more quickly, and it's two to three times actually faster than the rest of the globe. If one goes down to pre-industrial levels, and we actually have a graph on this in the report, thresholds, actually parts of the Arctic have warmed by 3.5 degrees C, which is much, much more than you usually see cited because we're, we're sort of low-balling it sometimes when it comes to climate change in these areas by starting the clock, say, at 1950 or starting the clock at 1900. But if one goes back to pre-industrial, where we do have a fair number of records, and so many scientists are willing to call it this way, going back to, say, the, the 1850s, it's about a 3.5-degree temperature rise. And the global temperature, I'm not quite sure if it's been called for you know 1.0 degrees at this point or very, very close to that starting in 2015, but that's almost you know, three and a half times more of a temperature rise than you're seeing elsewhere. So it's quite a, a startling difference. And even in a lot of mountain regions that are equatorial, you're seeing temperature rises that are twice what you're seeing elsewhere in the globe. So you're seeing climate change a lot more quickly in these regions. So let's suppose, Pam Pearson, by some miracle, the nations of the world wake up and they keep all the promises they made at the Paris Climate Talks of 2015. Would that save the great ice fields in the Arctic and the Antarctic? It would be extremely difficult. It is still possible, yes. But the pathway that we're on right now is nowhere near what would be required. Some of these triggers, our dynamics have already been triggered. It seems more likely than not that the West Antarctic ice sheet has already entered a state of collapse and that halting that is going to be very, very difficult. We could slow it down, however, and that would give, you know, humanity and ecosystems more time to adapt to a sea level rise that's probably going to be somewhere between three and four meters. But certainly, if we want to try and stop it, if we can hold temperatures to today's levels, we certainly would at least have some chance of doing so. The problem is that the Paris Agreement, as it now stands, would have us see temperatures already by the end of this century that are about two and a half times that. The estimates range from 2.6 to 3.5 degrees by 2100. The problem is that's just the start of the warming which would continue up to somewhere between 3.5 and 4.2 degrees by 2300. And also the processes that are getting started, we're not going to see them anytime soon. But the point that we and the scientists are really trying to make is that the processes themselves, once started, cannot be stopped. And so we will see these levels of sea level rise, even if it takes a long, long time to take place, hundreds or even thousands of years. If we have any chance of stopping it, then we really need it. And this is one message we were really trying to hammer home as much as we could in Paris. Even 1.5 degrees is quite high in the danger zone for most of these thresholds. Uh, There's very little chance that we're going to have Arctic summer sea ice at 1.5 degrees, for example. We're going to lose probably at least 30% of the permafrost at 1.5 degrees. 
And those are conservative estimates. These are not, you know, radical estimates. They're fairly well grounded in the science at this point, which is why the fact that this message has not gotten through to the policy world seemed more and more alarming to a lot of these scientists, and that's why they were willing to to really step up. And many of them actually came to Paris to try to talk through this message with policymakers. And I would say that, that we were seeing some of that message start to come through because prior to Paris, I think that the emphasis was very much on, for example, 2.0 degrees. And hopefully, I would I would hope that because of the message that was coming out about what is already happening in cryosphere, as well as messages from, say, small island developing states that are already seeing the, you know, their their countries disappear, really, and knowing that their countries will disappear, that that got through. And so 1.5 degrees is still on the table. There's a special report that's going to be coming out in 2018 looking at implications and pathways that could lead to 1.5 degrees. But again, I can't emphasize enough, 1.5 degrees is well within the danger zone for most of these, uh, these, these processes. And we're looking at twice that at this point in time, unless these commitments by countries are strengthened. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. My guest is Pam Pearson, the director of the International Cryosphere Climate Initiative. We are talking about irreversible changes to Earth's frozen lands and seas. Right, and you know, my reading in this report seems like the most optimistic of the current proposals to reduce emissions still brings the burden of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to around 600 parts per million by the end of this century. To me, that's like a disaster. We're already losing billions of tons of ice from Greenland and West Antarctica. What would those higher CO2 levels mean? Those CO2 levels would mean that we would be well above the areas where you're going to see most of the permafrost, certainly majority of the permafrost thawing. You're going to be losing West Antarctica and Greenland. You're going to be losing Arctic sea ice in the summertime and during greater parts of the year. And the other thing that is really, really alarming and that a lot of people still haven't heard about is is ocean acidification. And we're focused on polar ocean acidification. But at 600 parts per million, that is almost certainly going to lead to such high levels, such a, a, a lower pH, in other words, that we really haven't seen. The world's oceans have had a really, really stable pH over about the last 35 million years. It's been a very, very long time since it's buried. And so all of the organisms that we have today, or most of them certainly, have evolved in this level of pH. What's going to happen to them if we get a more you know, acidic system is going to be it's almost unimaginable because we haven't seen that ecosystem for such a long time. The time frames that we're looking at to go back to temperatures and CO2 concentrations, like we're contemplating, you know, possibly by the end of this century, we haven't really seen, again, for 35 million years. And one of the most striking visuals I've ever seen was an Antarctic scientist, it's called a paleoclimatologist, looking at ancient climate systems 
where they were trying to talk about the way the ice sheets on Antarctica have behaved at CO2 levels, again, that we haven't seen for about 35 to 50 million years. And the visual she was showing in terms of ocean currents looked really funny, and it took me a while to realize. The reason is continental drift. The continents were closer together at that point in time. And so in order to try and figure out what is going to happen at these CO2 levels, the scientists studying this need to consider the fact that that ocean currents were a little bit different because North America, South America, and Europe, Africa were closer together at that point in time. It's just really mind-blowing that that we are contemplating a globe that is so very different from anything we've seen in human history. It's really playing with fire, or some of the scientists would pun it's playing with ice. Well, the fifth assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, did say that many aspects of climate change are, quote, largely irreversible on human timescales, end quote. But, Pam, they buried that on page 1033 of a FAT report that hardly anyone reads. How did 15 scientists try to get that idea out further in the Guardian newspaper last December? And, by the way, at the end of the day, we ended up, I believe, with 26 scientists who were willing to sign on to that ad, which I found almost very moving. Scientists are a conservative bunch. They don't like being advocates, but these particular scientists, again, are very, very concerned at what they are seeing and observing, not just modeling, but seeing in the cryosphere. I've been working in this area. I'm I'm an ex-diplomat and returned to the climate change field again in 2006. From that date to now, what I've been seeing is a growing level of alarm from more and more scientists about what they see happening and what the implications are. And what that's translated into is a growing willingness and almost a, a desire, really, to engage in the policy world. Where this report came from was uh, what was called the the Day of the Cryosphere, where we gathered a bunch of cryosphere scientists together in Warsaw, Poland, which was two years before Paris, to present this. And many of them were scientists who had participated in the fifth assessment and had gone through that process of producing the summary for policymakers in addition to the entire many thousands of page, you know, report that was the final report. And they had indeed seen their message watered down because what a lot of people aren't aware of is that when you reach that final phase of what's going to go into the final summary, which is the most that most policymakers read, if they even read that, that's negotiated. And that's not just negotiated by the scientific community. It's negotiated by the policy community. And if there are messages that are found to be uncomfortable, then you're right. That can get very, very watered down. All of the messages are there if you're able to, to read between the lines or read the science. But sometimes they can be very, very difficult to parse out. And it was a discomfort with that process that led a lot of these scientists then to really want to start engaging in the climate negotiations and the UNFCCC processes just to make sure that they at least had made sure, as certain as they possibly could as scientists, that an honest and realistic message about what is really happening globally was going to be in front of negotiators when they were meeting. 
I think that scientists see this as a crisis, the kind of crisis that would bring people together in wartime. That level of understanding of crisis just isn't there in the general public just yet. And so I think there is still a bit of an unwillingness to take the kinds of steps that might be necessary to address it. You know, one thing I found missing in this report is the threat of melting frozen methane on the seabed, known as clathrates. Other scientists I've talked to see clathrates as a likely driver in past mass extinction events. Why isn't it done up more in the ICCI report? We really contemplated that, and the problem with the science between the clathrates is that there's still a lot of controversy about it among the scientists themselves, ranging from those who see it as a far greater threat than the carbon that's in permafrost to those who think that a large portion of it is going to be absorbed by the water as it's bubbling up in essence, so it's not going to reach the atmosphere. And because of that uncertainty, we have a line in there about class rates and that it's out there and it is a huge amount of carbon. There's no question of that. The question is, will it reach the atmosphere, and how much will it be? But there wasn't the level of scientific consensus that we had on permafrost or the other four thresholds, and it was really important at the end of the day that we focus on the science that was certain and not invite in any controversy at all because the message of those five thresholds, including permafrost, was alarming enough as it is. And so we decided very, very consciously to be conservative. That was a controversial decision. You're right. There are some scientists who really believe that we should have had much more on it in the report. And I'm hopeful that within the next couple of years, some of the uncertainty around class rates is going to emerge, just like it did in permafrost, really just in time for Paris in the report, because the first truly consensus paper on permafrost came out about this time last year, and that enabled us to have a really strong statement on permafrost that wouldn't have been possible just a year ago. Hopefully, with class rates, we're going to get there, you know, again, within the next couple of years and be able to say a little bit more certainly how much carbon is going to come out at what temperature levels. Well, of course, I'm hoping that the scientific process does not lag behind events. We shall see. I want to read in one paragraph here from the report, if I may. It says, Adaptation to the levels of projected climate-related disruption, particularly sea level rise that cannot be halted and accelerates over the centuries, simply will not be possible without massive migration and other changes to human centers of population and infrastructure that will carry enormous economic and not least historic and cultural costs. That's kind of a a bleak way of looking at the future, really. If we let this go, adaptation doesn't sound very possible. No, it really isn't. I mean, you can call it adaptation if New York is relocated to an entirely different spot in the state of New York or New Jersey or Connecticut, but it won't be New York City anymore, will it? Even though those levels of sea level rise, again, they're going to take a long time to happen. I mean, right now, for example, one of the scientists who's worked on this, uh, a lead author on a study, Anders Levermann, has looked at what would happen to UNESCO cultural sites if we even see one or two or three or four meters of sea level rise. And what we're looking at is much more than that. 
and the number of, of sites that would be lost is just huge. In human timescales, we're really not talking about that long ago, and what we're doing is condemning history, or condemning to history, I suppose I should say, sites of civilization that have existed for a very long time and that we will not be able to, you know, preserve. You can't build levees that high and preserve these sites, these ecosystems, and the only thing we can do, again, is to prevent it from happening in the first place, and that means action now, action really within the next 5 to 15 years. The very depressing thing about a lot of the policy debate is the degree to which leaders are saying, we'll do this in 2050 or we'll do this in 2040. Given what we already see happening right now, that is way too late to stop these processes from happening. We can't have goals of carbon neutrality really in 2100. That's way too late. And even 2050 is way too late. We really need to be aiming much, much earlier. And with all the tools that we have at our disposal to addressing things like black carbon and methane where, you know, it works a lot more quickly if you take those emissions down, putting that all together into an emergency package really is what it's going to take in order to slow these cryosphere processes down. Could you fill us in about the International Cryosphere Climate Initiative? Just briefly, who is that? How did this happen? Well, I founded it right after, or almost, I, I should say, standing in Bella Center in Copenhagen, sort of watching what we had hoped would be a climate agreement fall apart. So I'd been working with climate scientists who were focused on areas like the Arctic and the dynamics that were ongoing there. And as I reached out to more and more scientists as an ex-diplomat trying to bring them into the climate negotiations, I'd become aware that it wasn't just the Arctic, it was also mountain areas, and it was also Antarctica. And there really wasn't an organization that was focused on the science or policies uh, relating to climate change that existed. And so it was a gap that I and some of the people I was working with sought to fill. Since then, we've simply been reaching out to more and more scientists and policymakers, uh, many of them ex-climate negotiators, a lot of them from Arctic countries, but some of the people who were involved are from India, for example, and are also concerned about these kinds of dynamics because of sea level rise. And then the other key thing that happened in Paris was an agreement that the commitments, or INDCs as they're called, will be revised already in 2020, and they need to be much stronger than they were in 2015. Because right now there's just way too much, I would say, intentional blindness or kind of a sense that, oh, we've still got time, and we really don't have very much time when it comes to the cryosphere. We've been talking about a new report, Thresholds and Closing Windows, Risks of Irreversible Cryosphere Climate Change. Our guest was one of the authors and overseers, Pam Pearson. She's the director of the International Cryosphere Climate Initiative, or ICCI. You can find out more at iccinet.org. You can also find links to this report and helpful articles in my weekly Radio Ecoshock blog at ecoshock.info. Pam, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for your interest. Just 10 years ago, scientists told me melting the world's ice system would take thousands of years. Since then, with the shocking ice loss at both poles, we're not so sure. 
Maybe abrupt climate change is possible. We're about to explore what can happen within one lifetime that has already happened in the ancient past. To find the clues, we'll dig into the seabed with a founding expert in the field. Our guest is recognized as the father of that science called paleo-oceanography. He started publishing in the 1960s. He wrote the standard college textbook, Marine Geology, and he founded a journal on this subject. Dr. James Kennett is Emeritus Professor of Marine Geology and Paleoceanography at the Earth Science Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Kennett, it's an honor to welcome you to Radio EcoShock. Well, I'm pleased to be here. Why don't we start with the longer-term view of deglaciation and then work towards your surprising discovery? Was I right to say that a while ago, scientists thought major changes to the cryosphere would take thousands of years? That's correct. The uh, paradigm, if you like, uh, many years ago, before the 80s really, was that glacial and interglacial oscillation, you know, ice ages and, and interglacial oscillations were gradual, pretty gradual. The, the transitions were taking about many thousands of years. And uh, that was the paradigm. It was being primarily driven by oscillations of the Earth geometry in relation to the sun and uh, therefore pretty predictable. And even in the 70s, there was a, a suggestion based on this paradigm that the Earth would be going into cooling, which was actually reasonable. That was the case. And, but in the 80s, especially the late 80s and, and on to the present time, what happened was a series of sequences were obtained initially in the Greenland Ice Sheet and then uh, here in Santa Barbara, California, in the Santa Barbara Basin. Uh, another one in Cariaco off Venezuela. A few critical sections were obtained through good technology, and these uh, provide a high-resolution or high-fidelity record of climate change, as measured in the atmosphere in the Greenland, as measured in the ocean in places like Santa Barbara. And big surprises emerged was that <laughs> it was found that very large climate changes, both warming and cooling, warming and cooling, not just warming, uh, occurred in uh, decades, uh, decadal, centennial timescales. So major changes can occur in like 5 degrees centigrade, which would be about 10 degrees Fahrenheit, which is huge, could occur in just a few decades. And uh, this, was, this is all well accepted. I mean, this is not even debated now in the scientific community. It's well accepted, but the big questions, of course, and it's still one of the major earth science problems of these times, is what are the triggers and what are the feedbacks, the climatic feedbacks, that are driving this incredibly rapid climate change at times. And that has not been adequately answered yet. It's, it's, a, it's a huge and interesting question. And of course, with the, uh, the ongoing global warming, it's uh, understanding what triggers are and what the feedbacks are is, is paramount to trying to predict what's going to happen with, with warming in the future. That is anthropogenically caused. So that's, that's sort of a brief analysis of where we are. Now, in your paper, you talked about two cycles that I noticed. One was a 700-year period, which is pretty short in geologic time, and then a 50-year period. Let's start with the 700-year period. What did you find was happening in that amount of time? Not a lot. Basically, uh, just, some gradual, just some gradual warming. In other words, there's a, there's a background... What we, we see in the record is during the, uh, the transitions between glacials and interglacials, in other words, from, from the ice ages into a warm period like we live in now, there's some gradual warming. But superimposed on that gradual warming are these sharp jumps. 
And uh, as you say, there's like 700 years. Yeah, there's some gradual warming, not a lot, not terribly significant, but in a, in a general warming trend. But then superimposed in that in that trend is the uh, these remarkable jumps, like the one we just published about. We can get about a five degree centigrade, which is about 10 degree, almost 10 degree Fahrenheit, enormous jump, in about 50 years, it's half a century, one lifetime, one human lifetime, and. We've known this, uh, this sort of thing is for some time based on younger records that we've studied, both in Santa Barbara and the Greenland Ice Sheet. But again, you come back to this major question, what, are the, what on earth are the triggers that can suddenly drive the Earth's climate system that quickly in you know, less than a century? And, and this is not uncommon. I mean, basically, the record is full of these sharp jumps. When you, go, when you look at the geologic record, when you go back and look and see what has happened in the past, and of course that has become quite important because in order to try to predict where we're going with global warming, with global change now, we'd love to know what may happen in 100 years, 50 years, whatever, 200, 300 years. And of course that comes down to this crucial question, what are the triggers and what are the feedbacks that are doing this? And that's, a, that's something of a question still. Well, I guess this is what we talk about when we talk about tipping points. I mean, things can proceed along a certain direction for a while, and then climate sensitivity turns out to be greater than we thought, and, and things sort of fall off the edge. Well, exactly. One thing we have learned in the last few decades is just how sensitive, in fact, in the last you know, 20, 30 years, just how sensitive the, the global climate system is. These tipping points or thresholds occur, but it still comes down to the fundamental scientific question: what is what is causing the threshold? What is what is causing the tipping point? You see, that's the key. There's some process, there's some physical process on Earth that is actually causing that that sharp change to occur. That's what I mean by these uh, these rapid climate change. Well, let's journey back in time to about 631,000 years ago when your study published in October 2015 in the journal Paleoceanography was published. There were humans on the planet, mostly we assume in warmer Africa. I wonder what Earth would have looked like before and after this rapid transition. I mean, basically, that, the, that, that transition we're talking about at 620,000 years ago that's a transition. That's, a, that's what we call a deglacial episode. In other words, before that occurred, the Earth was deep in an ice age. And then it transformed during that what we call a deglacial into a uh, interglacial warming. And that, that amounted to melting of major ice sheets in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly over North America and Europe. That's a deglaciation. The ice sheets are melting dramatically. Sea level is coming up uh, rapidly. But what we, we have learned is that looking at that particular deglaciation 620,000 years ago, that, that occurred, okay, it took 700 years overall, but, it, but most of the changes in that period, most of the, the warming that occurred during that deglaciation occurred in only three steps. The first one, which amounted to well over half of the temperature rise of the Earth, occurred in 50 years. Again, that particular one we published on just recently is not unique. It's that, that, that's the style of, of climate change that the Earth has been experiencing for probably the last 700,000 years or even a million years. So we're not talking about abnormal, anomalous behavior here. This has been the trend. But I'm sure some listeners are wondering, how is it possible that a sample of seabed from sunny Santa Barbara can tell <laughs> us anything about the state of global ice? 
Ah, very much, because we run various measurements in the section. Okay, the first point is, is that the Santa Barbara Basin sedimentary record is happens to be one of, if not the highest fidelity climate record in the in the global ocean, anywhere in the world's ocean. So you get sediment, you get sediments deposited pretty rapidly in in the Santa Barbara Basin, and you have a beautiful record of parameters or proxies that we can measure, both geochemical and paleobiological proxies that we can actually measure the amount of temperature change in the ocean. And that, through much work over the last several decades, that, that is actually recording a global signature. It's not just local. This is, a, this is actually recording climate change on broad scales of the Earth. We know that because we can correlate, for instance, we can correlate this, the set, all of these little, little and large changes in climate that we can record in the Santa Barbara Basin, both warmings and coolings, in high detail with the equivalent record of warmings and coolings measured in the ice in the Greenland ice sheet. So that shows that, that what we're experiencing here is, in fact, global. And there were very sophisticated geochemical approaches that we use. We use oxygen isotopes, we use carbon isotopes, we use paleobiological proxies. We use a whole range of different kinds of geochemical tools to unravel what's happening in the climate globally. Obviously, in Santa Barbara Basin, we can't directly measure the melting of an ice sheet because we're too far away from the ice sheet, but we can interpret the climate change that's associated with that melting of the ice sheet. You are listening to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith, talking with Dr. James Kennett, a specialist in the study of seabeds. He's from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Jim Kennett, what do catastrophic events in Yellowstone Park have to do with the research you published in October? Oh, it's a good question. We're writing a paper on it now, another paper, and we hope to get it done this year. Basically, <laughs> okay, it's about 620,000 years ago, it just happens to be that the Yellowstone caldera formed. In other words, that volcanic, that huge volcanic caldera that we call Yellowstone blew out catastrophically and it formed this caldera, this volcanic caldera that many people have visited, uh, the big hole in the ground, if you like. And that caldera up there at Yellowstone is the, the, one, the top largest volcanic caldera known on Earth. The other is Toba in Indonesia. There's Toba and there's Yellowstone. Those are the two biggest known volcanic calderas of the last 25 million years. So it's a bigger, it's a bigger volcanic event when that blew out. It blew out ash over that covered much of North America, and the ash, the uh, the ash was transported atmospherically down by through winds down to Santa Barbara. We get a layers there. We get ash layers. We can geochemically fingerprint the ash as being derived from Yellowstone, from that actual blast out in Yellowstone. And so the question that arises, of course, is with such a large volcanic eruption, would there have been a volcanic winter? In other words, there was so much dust and associated chemicals in the atmosphere, sulfates in the atmosphere, that this would have uh, caused a volcanic winter. In other words, a darkness for several years. And so uh, what we did is we looked at the climate record at on a 10-year resolution between samples across this event. And to make a long story short, we discovered that the Caldera blastout consisted of two blastouts. There were two, and they were separated by 200 years. 
So there was one massive explosion, and then the 200-year lull, and then there was another massive explosion. And believe it or not, both of those explosions led to uh, immediate cooling of the uh, northern hemisphere, as recorded in Santa Barbara Basin, by 3 degrees centigrade each. That's about 6 degrees Fahrenheit in the history of the climate. So we have two volcanic winters. And those volcanic winters occur, uh, the, the, the volcanic winters took place in less than 10 years. Well, our resolution's only 10 years, so they probably occurred in one or two years, but we don't have the resolution. And the first volcanic winter uh, caused uh, feedbacks, climatic feedbacks, that made that cooling last 80 years. So that was an 80-year cooling. And the second one, the, uh, the feedbacks were even larger, and that lasted 200 years. So there we are. There's, uh, we know pretty surely that uh, that volcanic episode there did cause, did have a very large effect on, an immediate effect on global climate. But in that case, it was cooling, not warming. Now, some of our listeners are deeply worried about more global warming methane being released in our current climate shift, and your paper talks about, quote, repeated discharge of methane from methane hydrates associated with both ocean warming and low sea level. Did that methane erupt from the west coast of North America or from the Arctic? Uh, we don't know. The, uh, the, the, the methane signature of increased methane, that signature we're seeing in the Santa Barbara Basin, is local methane. That particular methane is coming from the disassociation of methane hydrates or frozen methane on the seabed or in the seabed locally on the Southern California margin. And that's not com- that methane is not coming from the Arctic. So the point is, what we're seeing here in Santa Barbara Basin is a it's a keyhole, if you like, into what how the system's operating, and I've got to say that I've worked on gas hydrates, which are frozen methane on the ocean margins. I've worked on on those now for some years, and I have to say that I'm extremely concerned about our ongoing global warming and warming of the oceans. That definitely is going on right now, warming of the oceans. I'm worried about how the gas hydrates are going to play out uh, in this process. I generally am very concerned about the potential role of gas hydrates as a major climate feedback that will exaggerate ongoing global warming. And that's a potential trigger. That's one of the potential triggers that can cause these tipping points. We can get a very rapid jump in global warming when you get a feedback, a major feedback coming in associated with widespread disassociation or destabilization of the gas hydrates on the ocean margins. I don't know if the, the listeners will be familiar enough about gas hydrates, but the record that we have in Santa Barbara Basin uh, is strongly suggesting that gas hydrates in the past have played a significant role in these rapid global warming episodes. Well, moving to another topic, I've just spoken with three scientists about possible shifts in plankton as the seas warm. What can we learn about ocean productivity from previous warm ocean events? Uh, quite a bit. Again, it comes down to the, how high the resolution is that one is measuring. But again, there are some pretty good geochemical and paleobiological proxies for past changes in ocean productivity you know, of the plankton, of the surface ocean plankton. And these are being conducted in different parts of the oceans by numbers of scientists. That's one part of the package, really. 
is to just understand just how much and what the change in distribution and productivity is in the ocean with, uh, with climate change. I wonder what climate modelers like David Archer will think after his book, The Long Thaw. Is there still disagreement in the scientific community about how fast deglaciation can take place? I don't think so. I don't, well, I don't detect uh, a lot of disagreement about what I talked about just earlier, that the, uh, there are these episodes of very rapid climate change, these so-called tipping points you mentioned. It's well demonstrated by these high fidelity records that it actually did occur. So, as again, I'll repeat, during some of these major climate transitions, there is a general warming to cooling or cooling to warming, whichever direction one's going. But superimposed on those are these rapid changes. So, yes, there are, there are general oscillations from warm to cold, from cold to warm and so forth, going on and on. But superimposed on those are these, these rapid changes. And the, the, the key question is what, as I come back to what I talked about before, was what's triggering these? And uh, I would say that one of the things we need to look at are, in this is gas hydrates. Now, I'll, I'll give an example of what we're seeing now coming out in the literature from the scientific, good scientific work. There was a recent paper from uh, the University of Washington of methane plumes coming up from the seabed off British Columbia and Washington, Oregon. And that what they've concluded is that these are new, that these methane plumes are new in the last 20 years, maybe 10. And they, they didn't exist before, but they're new. They, they, they've been activated. And they're pluming up through the water column from the ocean floor. And they, uh, the argument is, is that there's been a three, they know there's been a 0.3 degree centigrade change in bottom water temperature in this region at about 400 meters water depth. And they argue, and it seems reasonable to me, that, that this relatively mild warming, it's equal to about one degree Fahrenheit, has, dis- has begun to dis- disassociate the gas hydrates on the margin up there on the, off uh, the northwest North America. And that, to me, is a real concern. We're seeing it in other places. Even the, um, the Gulf Stream has been warming up. And so there's, there's evidence of recent disassociation of hydrates along the, the margin of the southeast U.S., adjacent to where the Gulf Stream is coming north. There's a paper on that. And also the major concern, of course, is in the Arctic, with what's happening with the, uh, the methane and the permafrost and in the, on the shelf and also in the, uh, on the slope, uh, deeper, in the deeper slope. But, you know, when I look at what happened at the Paris Climate Conference talks and in other policy settings, people aren't talking about abrupt climate shift. Is this something policymakers need to consider as remotely possible, possible, likely, happening now? What's your opinion? Oh, I think, uh, yes, the, uh, the Paris Conference did not consider these potential triggering points, but I think it's, uh, it's one of my major concerns is that that needs to be uh, strongly taken into consideration as to as to what the uh, what are some of these uh, potential feedbacks, rapid feedbacks in the future with with ongoing global warming. Basically, uh, the, the, the the position was that the changes will occur like two to three or two two or three degrees centigrade warming, but the they have not considered the the potential of parts of the system uh, coming in and uh, exaggerating the ongoing warming. I wouldn't say it's, it's conclusive, but I'd say it's a reasonable hypothesis to uh, seriously consider. And this, in general, the scientific community has not been doing that. 
We've been speaking with one of the founders of the science of paleo-oceanography, the study of the seabed. Dr. James Kennett has published hundreds of papers. He's a professor emeritus with the University of California in Santa Barbara. Jim, thank you so much for all your work and for talking with us today. Thanks for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. Find links to this paper, to Dr. James Kennett, and the topics we've talked about in my weekly EcoShock blog at ecoshock.info. I'm Alex Smith, reporting for Radio EcoShock.